Luke chapter 14. The invitation to a great banquet. Today we're going to see Christ's final call at the leaders, uh, leader of the Pharisees' dinner party. He makes one final exhortation to them, the people at the party. He gives a call to value him over the world. We should all take seriously Jesus' final exhortation to these self-righteous religious elites. Again, we must find our joy and satisfaction in Christ, not the world. We must forsake the world and its trappings for the glory of the kingdom of God. That's what we're going to see in our passage today. There's really three sections in this final exhortation to the members of the dinner party at the leaders of the Pharisees' house. The setting, the story, and the sentence. We'll talk about these three sections as we go along. Let's start with the first section, the setting. Again, just to kind of recap and get our minds around the setting for this story that Jesus gives that Mark read for us. Let's look at the setting. The events are brutal that lead up to this final story. Jesus has been invited to the leader of the Pharisees' house. And basically, Jesus has crashed the party. Everything they had hoped to accomplish at this gathering has backfired on them. They had hoped to catch Jesus. As we notice in verse 1, they were watching him closely just to trap him. But... As we have seen, Jesus was the master of answering a fool according to his folly. His wisdom silenced these wicked religious leaders. There are three elements of this setting I want to look at real briefly. I think we need to keep in mind these and remember these in our setting so that we understand the story better. The setting includes these three main elements, the confrontation, the deflection, and the final condemnation. Let's look at them. The confrontations. Notice first, in Luke 14, 5, it says, the first confrontation, He, and He, said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? Again, we talked about this question and we saw that Jesus silenced His critics. He had confronted their lack of compassion for this ill man. They were unable to levy their wicked assaults at him because Jesus asked these two questions and silenced them. They had accused him of helping someone on the Sabbath. They, if they would have accused or said that, he would have then, or they would have been condemned by him. So the mood in the house may be jubilant at first, We've got Jesus in our sights. This is going to be a great day. We're going to make him look miserable. By the time the second question's asked, people are silent, and the mood in the room becomes a little dark, maybe even a little sour. Everybody's looking at everybody. Maybe tensions are on, and it appears that at that point they start arguing about who's sitting in the highest seat. You can see it. Sin begets sin, begets sin, begets sin. And what's happening? They're starting to get a little dark. Notice, though, Jesus then confronts the guests <laughs> and directly at that. And he says, why do you take the chief seat, sit at the bottom, and have them move you up? Think wisely about these things. 
And he concludes in verse 11 with the confrontation, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus had given these to this little phrase to rebuke them for their pride. If you are all about yourself, he says, then you will be humbled eventually. But if you are humble now, then one day you will be exalted. The humble attitude is the heart of our response to the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. There is a need to be brought low, a need to recognize our utter need of God to save us. Jesus used the guest's pride at the dinner party to reveal a big problem with the hearts. They were self-absorbed people. No one can follow Jesus if they believe they deserve worship or praise or adoration from other men. God had called Israel throughout the years to humble themselves, thousands of years, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And here, the Lord was doing it again through the incarnate Son of God. So the dinner party got darker and more somber and more somber and sad and tensions were on edge. So what does Jesus do? Well, let me tell you a light joke and lighten things up. No, he then pulls out his crossbow and fires it right at the host. <laughs> I mean, it gets harder. It doesn't get easier. He says, let me turn my attention now to you who hosted this party. <laughs> and it got intense. Look, look what he says. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you were repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. <laughs> wow. If he was doing a, like I said, if he was giving a seminar on how to win friends and influence people, he didn't do it here, did he? I mean, everything he was saying, the opposite was happening. He was confronting the people with their pride and their self-righteousness. It was brutal. I can't even imagine. I bet you at this point it was murmuring, quiet, whispering. I bet every... This is a dinner party nobody wants to be at now. Silence. You'd accuse the leader that had hosted the party of being all about getting something from other people. Jesus had just pulled out a big, gigantic bucket of cold ice water and thrown it on the crowd. You realize who you are and how you're thinking, your attitude. The mood in the room must have been extremely tense. I bet they probably looked at Jesus with hatred in their eyes. Who do you think you are? You, you come into my house and say that? wonder if they were thinking that. And my guests. You insult my guests and then you insult me. So the tension was probably at a fevered pitch. And I'm pretty sure they wanted to take Jesus out right then. We wonder why the Pharisees, as time got long, they got more and more angry. Because almost everything out of Jesus' mouth by the end, 
was confrontational. Their pride, what did we say? The more the pride rises, the more the law was given. The more the woes were handed down. By the end, there was nothing they could do but kill him. They hated him. And this was just another example. Jesus was, in fact, calling them to evaluate their heart and turn to him. But in calling them to evaluate their heart, it was convicting. It rebuked them publicly of their high view of themselves. So when confronted by this sin, how do you think they reacted? That's where we come to our passage. It's the deflection, as you would say. Look at Luke 15, 14, 15, rather. The deflection. Notice in the setting, the deflection. When one of those were, who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of heaven, or of God, rather. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So in light of this gigantic tension in the room, one, man, one of the men reclining at the table seeks to diffuse the tension. <laughs> this is the proverbial deflection. Wait a second. Let's change the subject. Let's talk about something else. Let's focus on the positives in this room. After all, we're all going to be eating in the kingdom of God together. What are you doing? Why are you bringing down all this confrontation, confrontation, confrontation? Let's talk about something happier. Won't we all be happy when we get to heaven? That's kind of what he's saying. Everything will be a lot better there. The idea here is not that man is leaving it ambiguous. or uh, He meant, in effect, this is what the man meant. Oh, but we will be happy one day when we're in the kingdom of God eating. Come on, let's think about something positive. <laughs> so, question. What's the guy doing? Sin has been laid out. Hearts have been exposed. What does he do? Let's don't talk about sin. Let's talk about heaven. <laughs> Let's talk about something else. Happy. Everybody smile. Don't you want to smile now? Blessed will be when we're in the kingdom. He said this phrase presupposing he and all in the room would be eating together. Notice the man doesn't ask Jesus, hey, who's going to be eating in the kingdom of God? It's an assumption. He's assuming everybody's going to be eating in the kingdom of God. In light of this warped thinking, the Pharisees probably thought all of them were the first ones into the kingdom because, after all, they had accomplished so many religious deeds. You're talking to the guys that are the most holy. We're going to be happy when we're eating together in the kingdom of God, even though right now we're not very happy because you just confronted our sin. In effect, this guy says, well, Jesus, let's not focus on how we don't always look perfect here. Uh, instead, let's just rejoice we're all going to be in heaven or the kingdom together one day. We'll all up, end up there anyway. This is what the heart does, ladies and gentlemen. 
when confronted by sin, unless the Spirit is working, it makes excuses for its sin. Is that not true? It deflects to other more positive thoughts. It justifies itself. The heart is so wicked that even when God himself confronts it, the heart says, no, I'm a pretty good person and I deserve to be in glory. This is frightening, isn't it? Think about this for a second, folks. This is what happens when we witness to the lost. We talk to them about God and who he is. And we say, we're all sinners, and we explain the law and show this. And what do they say? Oh, well, I'm, I know, but I'm not going straight to hell. I, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm going to be in heaven one day. That's what they do. That's what we do. That's what the heart does. When confronted by sin, we deflect and justify ourselves. But this is when Jesus starts his final story. <laughs> the story is the final condemnation. The final nail in the coffin, as you might say, on this self-righteous religious Pharisees. Application for you here, I want you to think on. I want, I want to challenge you with the saying we have in our house. Own it. Own it. When the word of truth is laid to bear on your heart over a particular sin, we need to own it. Not deflect and make excuses or change the subject. The first step in repentance is acknowledging what we have done to the one we have hurt us or hurt God and how we've sinned against him. Acknowledging what we've done. By the way, parents, we must own our own sin as well. We all too often make excuses for our sin in front of our children and then expect our children to what? Never make excuses for their sin. Right? We must own our sin. Own it, not justify it. Also, be careful of making your way to heaven in your mind before you've gotten a fresh glimpse of the cross after a sin. Now, do you understand what I mean by that? Let's think on this for a second. Saying something like this when confronted by sin. Thankfully, I'm forgiven. I'm, I'm going to be in heaven one day without the sin. I just need my glorified body now. And what we did there, we can automatically, that's a good statement, but it's got to be after repentance, after recognizing you've been forgiven. See, what happens is we often jump right ahead and say, somebody confronts us with sin, oh, yeah, I know, but thankfully I'm going to be in heaven. We'd be doing the same thing. When we sin, what should we do? Own it. Yep, that's me. I did it. I'm wrong. It's like the word we all too often hear. Sorry. Right? We say that word flippantly, don't we? Sorry. Oh, sorry. Sorry I offended you. And just move on. Let's get past this. Please ignore it. Let's get to heaven. Let's focus on positive things. Own it. When we sin, we need to own it. This guy didn't own it. Nobody in the room wanted to own it, did they? Because after all, they were good people. They were righteous people in their own eyes. But Jesus, recognizing how lost these people were, concludes with a final story, and that's the final condemnation. We notice in this setting, finally, but he said to 
him, a man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. The story is so counter to the way the people of that day would have thought. It's contrasting what he said. In fact, the guy says, blessed is he who will eat in the kingdom of God. And in fact, he says through the story, you're not going to be there. (laughs) Ouch. You're not going to be there. That's what he used the story to do. Your self-righteousness, because you're not owning it, you're not going to be there. Because you're not humble, you're not going to be there. That's what he gets at. Man, I don't know about you, but that would not have been a dinner party to be at. (laughs) You could probably cut it with a knife. The tension, that is. Let's look at the story in verses 16 to 23. The story is a way for Jesus to make his point with vivid clarity. And again, Jesus often used these kinds of stories to make his point very understandable. By the way, this is one reason why I think uh, illustrations are a good thing for sermons. Illustrations are supposed to help us to understand the point the scripture is making. But the illustration should never be just this cute story which gives the audience a nice feeling to in their heart, to make them feel good, and then the audience forgets what the passage was even talking about. That's called a bad illustration. If I make you cry, but you don't know what the passage means, I've failed. (laughs) But if I give you a story that helps you to understand the passage and the Spirit of God convicts you and you cry over your sin, that's a different issue. Jesus used stories to make clarity so that the people could understand what it meant. And the story was all so that the guys in the room could go, Oh, I'm valuing other things over God. I'm not even going to be in the kingdom. He used the story to make his point. Jesus confronts these religious people with the fact that they were actually going in the wrong direction even though they assumed that they would be in the kingdom, they weren't going to be. The story breaks down into three main parts, the invitation, the reflections, and the substitutions. Let's talk about them. First, the invitations. In verses 16 and 17, he says, But he said to him, that is, Jesus said to the man, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. Notice the story starts with the man who is hosting a big dinner. This would be something the religious leaders would have been very familiar with, especially the leader of the Pharisees. This was what they lived for. They lived for this kind of party. They longed to be invited in this kind of big dinner banquet. Like Jesus had confronted the host Often they even gave parties with the idea that one day I might get invited to one of these parties. So it was all about this giving to get and to enjoy and have these great big parties. Jesus gives this story. The way these big banquets worked is they would have two invitations. There would be an initial invite to announce the coming of the great banquet. 
this was a signal to the people who were invited to the banquet to not book anything on that day or around this time. Leave your schedule open because you want to go to this, right? So they would already have been invited in Jesus' story here. It was a formal invitation, much like our wedding announcements. But then, because during that day, preparing for all a big party like this had to be flexible, they would then send a second invitation. The difficulties of their societies made a second invitation an imperative. They didn't have... Uh, catering services and refrigeration and they couldn't tell the weather as well and they didn't have inside things where they could go in inside and and get covered if there was a giant banquet so there had to be preparation and sometimes the preparation might flex a little bit so what would happen is they'd get this first initial invitation and then they would send out a second one okay it's ready come on okay it's ready come on That's what's happening here. So Jesus' story implies all the people had already got their initial invitation. Now, the Lord of the house sends out his follow-up invitation. The second invitation was hardly ever rejected in Jewish society, especially by those wanting to get the benefits of what they had done previously, right? Because they had given parties so that they could be invited to a party. This is my opportunity. To get paid back what I deserve. (laughs) That's how the Pharisees thought. So they would never miss the second. When it said come, they'd say, absolutely. So as Jesus unfolds the story, the crowd in the house could have even smirked and said, this isn't a true story. This would never happen. Who would be that rude? Who would reject an opportunity like this for a great banquet? Especially after they had been invited and it appeared that they said, okay. But this is exactly what these men were doing. And Jesus was confronting them. He was setting them up. These men were the religious Jews. They had affirmed the truth of Scripture. They had said they believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. They had said they believe in the Messiah to come. They had said it. They were the conservatives of their day. Scary, isn't it? But like the people in the story, when the final invitation shows up, (laughs) Jesus shows up, they rejected the invitation. They didn't go to Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, this would be like sending an RSVP card back saying, okay, you're going to be there, and then not going, costing the person that hosted you hundreds of dollars for not showing up. That would be rude, wouldn't it? Crazy, isn't it? Well, this is what the Pharisees were all about. Jesus revealed the wickedness of these people's hearts in this story, he showed what they were all about. It was not for a lack of knowledge, ladies and gentlemen, and I cannot stress this enough to you. He is talking to the most, quote-unquote, biblically scholarly people of his day. These were the religious leaders. It's scary stuff. Yet, the Messiah that the Scriptures had talked about was right there in their midst, and they were rejecting him. 
Oh, listen, folks. Would you do that? You say, no, I'd never do that. Be careful, folks. Have you ever known something was not right to do and then you just went ahead and did it anyway? (laughs) Are we not these people at our heart apart from God's grace? No, I never do that. Whatever God's word says, I always do. Don't say that. If you're there, oh, you're going the wrong way. That is not true. Folks, these Pharisees had all the scriptural knowledge, but no heart change. And they were missing it. And Jesus was telling a story to smack them. Throwing more cold water on them. Notice the rejection, though, in the story. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife. And for that reason, I cannot come. The responses to the second invitation in the passage are almost unimaginable to the people Jesus was talking to. This just did not happen in their culture. Not only was it not going going to the party after previously affirming it, but they were doing this in total rejection of the host. They were slapping the host in the face, in effect. No one would make these kind of excuses. Not these kind. Notice the excuses. Land has been purchased. I need to go and inspect it. First of all, folks, no one bought land without already looking at it. No one did that, but it had already been purchased. Nobody would do that. This excuse is a lame rejection of the invitation. I just want to go out and look at my new purchase. (laughs) Most in the party probably thought Jesus was telling a joke or was crazy telling such an ignorant story. Nobody would act like that. (laughs) But again, Jesus was setting them up. He's reeling them in. It reminds me so much of the story Nathan told David. Remember a story Nathan told David? He tells his story, and David just gets riled up. Yeah, I cannot believe that guy. I'm going to take him out. I'm going to kill him. He deserves to die. And Nathan goes, you are that man. Ooh. Jesus is doing the very same thing. He's reeling them in. He's reeling them in. Luke, perfect picture of a fishing illustration here. He's throwing it out. Luke's my fisher buddy. He's throwing the bait out. Fish has grabbed it, and he's pulling them in. It's good stuff. Notice, I have bought ten oxen. Let me go try them out. That's the second excuse. Again, no one bought oxen without first trying them out. This would be an obvious one to the listener. No one would miss a grand banquet for this reason. 
go play with some cows for a little bit? It's almost insulting to the head of the household to use this kind of excuse. Again, it was a slap in the face of the host. Basically, it was saying this. This kind of excuse was saying, host, I don't like you. I don't like you. I don't really want to come to your party. Here's this lame excuse because I don't want to be there. And then the final one. I have married a wife. Now in the law, men were excused from war for being newlyweds for one year. But they were definitely not excused from a dinner party. No one in his right mind would would reject or accept the invitation first and then reject it later when it came to them because they wanted to stay home with their wife. Again, this would have been almost laughable to the audience. We know in that culture women were not looked down or were looked down upon. Unfortunately. Again, this is crazy to the listeners. The only way someone would reject the second invitation for these three reasons was because they hated the host. Herein lies the irony of the whole story. He's basically saying to them, you hate me. And therefore, you will not come to my party. You are proud and you think you are something. But in fact, you're nothing. These men were the ones who had said they were looking for the Messiah. Embraced the initial invitation, in a sense. But then when he showed up, they hated him and eventually would kill him. They would kill the host. These excuses were a perfect illustration of how most of Israel had valued everything over their Messiah. Jesus was confronting them with their unbelief. Jesus was using this story to give these self-righteous ones one more rebuke for their rejection of him. Folks, I want us to recognize some inconsistencies also in our own lives, though. I went through this story with the children yesterday, and I think it's a good, good to reflect on for us. Let me ask you a question. How many of you would give your car away to someone if you could go to heaven right now? Everybody? Give your heart. Okay. All the kids, I asked about their toy. And they all said, yeah, I'd give it away. I'd go to heaven right now. Most of you say, sure I would. The problem is, we sin if something happens to our car. Or we sin if we don't get to keep our car. Or we sin to get a better car. We all say, yeah, I'd give it up right now, but then we sin if things don't fit in our agenda with our car. Somebody bumps into the back of our car and we go, I can't believe you would hit my car. If we were to walk out right now and all your tires were slashed, I didn't do that. And if it happens, it wasn't me. You would all go, you give, Lord, and you take away. Blessed be the Lord, right? Hey, you waiting? Oh, ladies and gentlemen, 
we say these things so quickly. Oh, yeah, you can take everything. No problem. But why is it that we often sin over the very things that we hold on to so dearly? Aren't we doing the same thing? (sighs) Obviously, folks, Jesus is better than your car, right? Or any car you'd ever get. Or any house you have or any spouse you have. He is better, isn't he? Folks, we are quick to say, I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. But then when we don't have any silver or gold, we fuss and complain and worry. When we sin, we say the same thing, don't we? Ladies and gentlemen, what we own is not ours. What you have is not yours. This is, only, this is the only way you will survive in this world. My house is not mine. My car is not mine. My wife is not mine. My children are not mine. My family is not mine. I'm just a steward of his stuff. And this is really not my home anyway. And by the way, as crazy as this sounds... the three people that would reject the dinner party to hold on to their possessions. This is what we're like when we hold on to ours. Jesus is worth more than anything you have and that's what we need to recognize. The people at the party missed it. God was in their midst. The one who gave them life and breath, the creator himself, was there. And they tried to trap him. And they valued the approval of men more than him. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is laying the hammer down. Evaluate, folks. Evaluate what you own and really who owns it. So the story Jesus tells shows the foolishness of rejecting Jesus. But notice the story continues with the substitute, the substitutions. In verses 21 to 23, And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the street and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done and and there is still room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be full. This is so amazing because the reaction makes sense. The rejected one should be mad, correct? The host should be angry, right? All that he had done for these people, and they rudely make lame excuses, he should be angry, right? Jesus is revealing the heart of God towards those who have so much of his revelation, and yet they reject him. 
what does God think of people that have his word and then don't receive him? What does he think of that? That angers him. This is the heart of God. When we have all this truth and we don't respond in repentance and faith, do you think that God makes God happy? No. The host of the party turns to the very ones he knows will value the gift the most. He turns to the broken and the outcast. He turns to the substitutes. The ones who are broken and have nothing. The hopeless. The replacements, you could call them. These were the ones who would probably would have said, No way am I going to be invited to this party. They would have said that. No way would I get to go to a great banquet. That's who he turns to. The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame were off limits for the kind of dinner that the Pharisees and Jesus is talking about here. They were the people who were not valued. Matter of fact, they would never be invited because then they might contaminate the others. They don't get to go to the great banquet. Leave them out. By this time, the religious Jews listening to this are probably going crazy in their minds. What? I wonder if any of them, did it dawn on them? He just said the same four terms to the host. I wonder if at any point they went, oh, didn't he just tell the host to invite those people? I wonder if it's starting to turn in their minds yet. Is it getting it? Are you, is it catching? You know, you unhumble ones, you, you proud ones, you one that give to get repaid, you're not going to come. The ones that are coming are the ones that are needy, the broken, the hurting. These outcasts were the ones the religious Pharisees hated. And yet these are the ones that are coming to the party. At this point in the story, the obvious allusion to the same group is there, right? You saw it. Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come. He moves on to this second group. This is obviously a reference to Gentiles and to everyone else who lived outside the clean religious people. At this point, the religious leaders would have been beside themselves. You're kidding me. What? Go to the Gentiles to fill your dinner? This story is a sham. But Jesus was totally serious. Jesus would go to the least likely to fill his kingdom because he was not all about what the outside of the cup looked like. He was all about those who were desperate and needy. Jesus often picked the ones running the fastest to get away from him. Case in point, the Apostle Paul. So what Jesus said to these men in effect is, guess you are all about your own self-righteousness. You value the things of this world more than me. 
So you're not going to enjoy me. You're off. You're out. You're out of the kingdom. You're rejecting me. And so instead, I'm going to give my kingdom to the needy, to the broken, to the humble. Not to you proud, self-righteous ones. Can you imagine being there? Which brings us to the last section. And this section, I have to confess to you, is staggering. Look at it. The sentence. This is the final condemnation. The final judgment. This is shocking. This, is, this phrase is shocking. I, I can't even imagine what these guys are thinking. For I tell you. Now that little phrase there is often an indicator by Jesus that application's coming. Here it is. This is what I want you to get. You ready? None of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Whoa. My dinner. There's a switch here. He was telling about a person. Now it's my dinner. (laughs) That's a big change, isn't it? He's basically taking the story and said, I'm the man. (laughs) And it's my dinner. And none of those men are going to be invited. None of them are going to taste of it. Oh, folks, look back at verse 15 real quick. Look at This is startling. What did the guy say? He said what? Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So what's the, what's the setting? Those who are going to eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then he says, none of those who were invited shall taste of my dinner. This is an allusion, by the way, I believe, to him being what? God. He's saying, I'm God. He has turned the whole thing around and said, the kingdom of God is here in your midst. And guess what? You're not eating at my dinner. Oh, man. You're missing the very king who owns the kingdom. He's in your midst. I'm right here. Hello. Hello. I'm the king. I'm the man that's going to have a banquet. And you know, you said you'd be happy if you're going to be there. You're not going to be there. So what's your reaction to this story? What's their reaction? (laughs) What's the result? What happens? We don't know. Doesn't say anything. Next story. Move on. Next line. Right? Look at it. Now the large crowd were going along with him. (laughs) It's a different scene. So what did they say to him? What are they going to do? I mean, what do you do with this amazing truth? He just took out brass knuckles and laid them out. What did they do? Did they start? Oh, stagger a little bit. Whoa, man. You're saying you're God and I'm not going to the kingdom of God. Have mercy on me. You don't know. I believe Luke left it intentionally like this. Because ultimately the, the question needs to be asked by all of us. An answer by all of us. What about us? 
Are we depending on our own self-righteousness? Our own self-exaltation in order to get us to heaven? If so, we're trouble. We are in massive trouble. If we're valuing other things other than him, we're in trouble. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will give you grace. Folks, great evangelism does this, doesn't it? It makes a person aware of their sinfulness and their need of a savior. When confronted by our sin, what do we do? Do we humble ourselves? Do we own it? Do we repent? And do we look at Christ and say, you're my only hope? Or do we self-righteously justify ourselves? In effect, Jesus told the story, and just like Nathan told the story to David, he says, you are that man. I wonder what their response was. Well, we really don't have to think very far, do we? Here's what they did. You ready? They killed him. They killed him. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what self-righteousness does. It hates Christ, who is righteous. If you think you are good in your own eyes, you will elevate yourself over Christ and you want to get rid of him. You hate him. And you say, oh, well, I don't suffer with that. Ooh, then that means you really do suffer with it. (laughs) As soon as you say that. You say, oh, that is me. I got good news for you. You say that. Oh, that is me. I am that Pharisee. That's who he's looking for. The needy. The outcast. The broken. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. I need Jesus. How about you? Who's your hope? Jesus. Not yourself. Not yourself. Isn't that great news? Why is that great news? Because he knew you could not do it. So he did it. He knew you couldn't be righteous. So he was righteous and he died in your place. How many of us say, you are worthy? (laughs) All of us, right? Because at this point, Anybody in the room that's not the Pharisee says, Oh, the king is good. By the way, if you are saying the king is good, the Lord Jesus is good because he was righteous and you are not. He died to pay for your sins and I want to follow him. If you're saying that, the good news is is you are invited and we will eat bread in the kingdom of God not because we deserve it but because he is a good king 
Let's pray. Father, convicting words, once again reminded of how much we need you and our propensity to justify ourselves and not own our sin. We want to stop now, God, and just say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I have offended you. Lord, help us to see ourselves in light of who you are. We turn to you now. We once again embrace you, our God, our righteousness, not us, you. Please help us, God. Help us, Father, to exalt Christ, not ourselves. Expose our self-righteousness. Grant to us the joy of repentance, knowing that you are God and that you have sent your Son for us. Thank you, Father, for your word. We commit the rest of this day, the rest of our lives to you. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.